Hi, I'm Melissa and welcome to the Mummy Warriors podcast where we can normalise the conversation of motherhood and delve into issues that are quite often swept under the rug. Join me every single Tuesday for a brand new episode with a brand new topic. This is a mummy's club you want to be a part of. Hi and welcome to the Mummy Warriors podcast. Today I'm joined by Micah who is a mum of two and is a trauma midwife and a psychedelic guide. Micah will be sharing her own journey of healing trauma and how she helps others heal their trauma through psychedelics. Micah, welcome to the Mummy Warriors podcast. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to be here. It's a pleasure having you. So I just want to kick start off with you telling our listeners and myself a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, so I I live here in Mexico in a little town right outside of Puerto Vallarta. And I grew up originally in, a, in Nashville, Tennessee. So it's a very different world where I live now from where I grew up. I grew up on a small farm and my family was very much evangelical in nature. And so that informed a lot of my childhood in really pretty intense ways. And if you would have told that little girl that she would grow up and live in Mexico and work as a trauma worker with psychedelics, I would have probably not known what you were talking about and think you were crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But it is funny how the dots connect so clearly when you look back. So it's been quite a long journey to get here, but I do now work as a psychedelic guide with trauma survivors. And most of my clients are women and many of them have gone through, uh, unfortunately, you know, the Me Too movement has awakened us to the depth Mm -hmm. and scope of violation of women in our world. And thankfully we are now having a cultural conversation and reckoning around that. And I think one of the things that, that I've seen in my work is so many women finally owning and claiming their stories and getting the help that they need. And when we're talking about such a deep level of soul trauma, sometimes it can be really hard to get at the root of that, just using our brain. And the other piece is that when our heart gets wounded so severely, it can in some ways shut down and not like And that sounds bad, but it's actually a function of survival often that we stop feeling because the feeling is too much to bear. Yeah. And then we get away from the the moment of trauma and we want to feel again, but we don't know how to bring the feelings back online. And so for me personally, which is how this path began for me was on a personal pilgrimage to bring my feelings back online. Um, then that evolved into recognizing there's so much capacity to use these sacred plant medicines to help resuscitate ourselves from those kinds of deep wounds. So that's it in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely just to touch on a point of you said, like the evolution of women speaking on their trauma, because we all know that something that we never really did, especially not openly um, and with each other, was always something we kept quite personal. you know? Oh yeah. So now we're going through a culture where it's we're sharing our stories and relating with one another. And I think it's so, such a positive movement, to be honest with you. I do too. I mean, there's there's like an element of tragedy, of course, because it's it's heartbreaking to really reckon with 
the, the gravity, the scope and scale of how, how broken things have mm-hmm. been. But at the same time, we can't fix or repair a thing that we haven't even acknowledged. So it's so critical that we put a light on this and that we really start to bring the, bring the shadows and the pain into the light so that we can rework things and hopefully have, you know, a brave new world moving forward for our kids. Yeah. And what inspired you to become a trauma midwife? Yeah. So really this journey began for me in, in a concentrated way after the birth of my oldest son. And so I, you know, I wasn't, because my childhood had had a fair amount of trauma in it. I wasn't always sure that I wanted to be a mom, but as Mm -hmm. I got older, you know, I was, I had been so focused in my early adulthood on my career and on the surface, very successful. Um, But inside there was like this longing. And so at some point, you know, kind of in my mid thirties, I started thinking the longing is like, I I do want to be a mom. I want to know that kind of love. And then, as is the case with so many women, I think of of my generation, I found that I had fertility issues. It was like, it was a real struggle to get pregnant and then a struggle to stay pregnant. We had three Mm -hmm. miscarriages before I was pregnant with my son, you know, and I remember going to the, the fertility specialist and her just, you know, pretty much saying, you've waited too long. What do you expect? Right. And I was like, so shocked and like, whoa, heart injury around the feeling that like, this was the way that, you know, she responded to this, this situation that was happening in me. And so anyways, fast forward, I managed to get pregnant, but then every sort of complication under the sun happened in my pregnancy, starting with hyperemesis. Then I had two placental abruptions and developed preeclampsia and ended ended in the NICU with like an emergency C-section. Thank God, both of us are totally fine and healthy. But like literally on some levels, everything that could have gone wrong did. And so it was like this most beautiful desired moment coming to fruition, but with a backdrop of like chaos and panic at every interval. And again, in like a traditional hospital setting where they were trying to manage the potential for danger, but also that in and of itself was a little dehumanizing because I was like a problem to solve. Right. So when they finally sent us home, you know, I had this like three pounds little preemie and I was a wreck of postpartum emotions and anxiety And I experienced what I think clinically they would call a postpartum break. Like I was, I was not able to really have like a, a sane sort of handle on what was going on. My panic drives were so strong. I was having panic attacks every day. And at that point in time, the clinical trials around psychedelic therapy. So like medicines like psilocybin, which are mushrooms and MDMA working with patients who had treatment resistant trauma. We're just starting to really come through showing 
incredible results, results like they'd never seen before. And I remember like having my little tiny lump of a baby on my chest thinking, oh my God, maybe this is the thing that can help. And, and it was like, felt so taboo given my past, but at the same time, the motivation of wanting to love him from a whole, wholehearted place was so propelling me forward that even though I felt like this could be wrong, I don't know if it'll work. It was, it was a risk I had to take. And so that was the beginning of what now is almost a six year journey um, in that world and work. And it was pretty quickly into that healing process myself because I was already working as a coach, which is in some ways similar. You know, I was Mm -hmm. talking with people about their feelings and their development. And in my second ceremony, the medicine really said, so when you, when your process is further along, this is the work that you should do with other people. And so it really did feel like it, like a calling that I, you know, received from some, some other force out there in the world. <laughs> yeah, because as I know that we discussed before in our meeting, it just seems like the whole pregnancy and giving birth like triggers trauma, triggers, triggers past trauma. Um, yeah. It's just, I don't know, there's just something in it. And obviously during this podcast, I spoke with so many mothers with the same sort of I'm sure you, with your line of work, you see, speak to a lot of women that come to that part where it just triggers something. Um, yes. And you start, your mind just starts going back to things that you kind of have buried and didn't even think was a thing or even took time to even think about, you know? I know for myself personally, as soon as I had my son, these trauma triggers just hit off in me that I did, it was, you know, a lot. Um, <laughs> So what was your own journey of psychedelic healing, like the day that you decided that you were going to go forward and and try this? Well, I mean, so I had that, that immediate sort of knowing, like, I will never forget that night, you know, just holding my little tiny baby and reading this article. And there was like a deep intuitive, the same part of me that knew I wanted to be his mother knew I needed to do that thing. So the intuitive knowing was clear from the moment it sort of presented itself to me, but I still, it wasn't like the next week I went and did the work because at that time, you know, this was, like I said, almost six years ago now. So it was even more underground than it is now Mm -hmm. where we've seen amazing strides in legalizing this work just over the past year. Um, So I had to do a lot of work and research to really figure out like, where, where would I find a therapist and what credentials should a therapist doing this work have in in this world of work? We talk a lot about set and setting. So meaning what is the mindset that you need to have to be really prepared for this kind of work? And what is the setting, meaning the environment, the support players and the space in which the most optimal effects can transpire. So I found a therapist Um, probably over the course of like a month's worth of researching and looking. And then my therapist, who ultimately became my mentor for a good solid chunk of time, I did like an apprenticeship with her. One of the things that she stressed to me, which is something I now stress to my clients, is 
the importance of preparing to do the work, like to just kind of leap into ceremony, I think can work for some people. But for me, as a mother with a tiny baby at home, I needed to really have support in preparing myself for what exactly was it that I was going to be working on and what Mm -hmm. might I expect to be destabilizing in that process and how would I support myself through that so that I could still be the best mother to my son. Um, So that preparation process before actually beginning the first ceremony took probably six to eight weeks. Okay. Okay. And just so like for the listeners and obviously I understand what it is, but I want you to sort of explain what psychedelic healing is mm-hmm. and yeah. what misconceptions for those who know what it is are out there or what misconceptions you've you've heard for yourself that are out there yeah this is such a good and important question so i just appreciate you asking it i think anytime something is like a grassroots movement that comes bubbling from underground One of the challenges with that is there's all sorts of places and spaces where misconceptions and false notions get propagated out there in the world. And so I think it's really important, and I sort of feel it as one of my personal missions to speak to those as many times as I can, because I think this is where the potential to undermine the efficacy of this work comes into play. If people have all sorts of false notions, then they might feel really disappointed. So let me just get right to one of them is that, well, I can go and do this work and it's so magical that I'll be like brand new and 100% repaired immediately following. Mm, I think that I, in the many, many people I've now worked with, including myself, I've never seen someone have a magical reset one and done. I've seen and witnessed magical things happen in a single ceremony that have the like seed raw potential to be life-changing. And when we go back to our everyday life where all the triggers remain and still exist, Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of work to do to reconcile what you now know is possible for yourself juxtaposed against what remains, which is the real work of healing. So to your other question, what is psychedelic healing? So there's a, there are all of these sacred sort of plant medicines. And while this is like a new cultural conversation, we can also just acknowledge that most indigenous cultures have been using many of these plant medicines for all of time. Mm-hmm. Right? So psilocybin is not a new tool. You know, here in Mexico, where I live, indigenous tribes have been working with psilocybin forever. This is what the medicine women do. Peyote is another one. There's ayahuasca, um, you know, and and on and on. There are other ones that are maybe more culturally sort of people are more familiar with. There's ketamine, which is actually already legally viable in most places. The other one that I work primarily with is MDMA which Mm -hmm. can be confused with like ecstasy, which is a street name. What I would say is in a therapeutic setting, MDMA is, it's like a very pure compound, a chemist compound. So it's not 
it's not mixed with the same sort of other substances. And that's really important when doing trauma work that you have the pure quality of medicine. So that speaks to another misconception is to do these sorts of things in a recreational setting. I think it's entirely possible that people could have mind expanding experiences and ideas and visions and all of that is true and not to be discounted, but it is categorically different than doing trauma work with these mm -hmm. tools. So to do trauma work with these tools is to go in with the intention of leveraging these medicines to actually help your brain function in a slightly different way so that with the support of a skilled therapist and guide, you can go back to certain moments of trauma that might otherwise be too formidable to go to Mm -hmm. and rework them in real time. So there's a part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is the part of our brain that manages our fear response. And when trauma happens, the amygdala can become stuck in fight or flight. Right. The amazing thing about the amygdala is that it's doing this to keep us safe for our survival. The challenge is that the amygdala cannot differentiate time. So it can't distinguish past from present. So therefore, people can feel sort of stuck, almost frozen in fight or flight. And it's, it's, not, their, it's not their imagination playing tricks on them. There is actually mm -hmm. a part of their brain that is like contracted in a way that wouldn't be had there not been trauma. So the medicines sort of speak to that part of the brain and en enable it to take a step back. Right. And in that slight relaxing of the fight or flight drive, neural elasticity expands. And that elasticity is like the golden moment when magic can happen. Mm -hmm. And again, the medicine is a tool to facilitate that, but the human spirit is doing the work. Right. Support. Right. I'm often wondering as well if it's that same part of the brain that manifests the same situation over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, so, you know, once you kind of go in and do your psychedelic healing, that part basically to, to go in there basically and sort of deal with it, face mm -hmm. it, fight it, rationalize it, have a conversation with it would then help break the pattern of manifesting the same trauma effectively over and over again. Yeah. Well, it's like people so often say some version of this, like, I don't like it, but I can't help myself because it's familiar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we get, we get stuck in, and really I think on a, on like a scientific level, what's happening is that the neural pathways in our brain are set they get set and reinforced over and over again. And so then without that, that like elasticity expanding, how do we create new neural pathways? There's a really famous book by a man named Michael Pollan. The title of the book is How to Change Your Mind. And he mm -hmm. speaks a lot to the, the ways in which these medicines change our mind by creating new neural pathways. So I think it's exactly what you're speaking to. These tools create a new pathway. And then we have, you know, the blueprint for something different. It's a starting yeah. point. 
It definitely, I think it's so amazing as well. The fact that number one, there's something that can make your brain do that basically effectively kind of make you lose control. Um, yes. Again, I know I spoke to you in our pre-pod about my own research about the psychedelics and going through psychedelic healing. And I myself had the misconception that, okay, I'll go there one time and then it would just be all done, like all my trauma would be done. But then whilst also sort of doing other research, I'm hearing people say, you know, talk therapy is kind of outdated now. It's been proven it doesn't work. But I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, mm. I kind of feel if you speak your pain as well as going through a healing process, the two kind of marry together. Yeah. Because it's all very well going in and going through this process, but if you're not speaking your pain and at least speaking your trauma, how are you ever going to verbalize or put a voice to what your trauma was, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I love the way you said it. I do think it, it, it's like a marriage of the mind and the body, right? Mm -hmm. And so for, for me and for so many people that I see come seek out this kind of healing, it's like the trauma has got them stuck from like the neck up. Mm -hmm. So they may have a really cognitive, as did I, understanding of my story. But even when they, they will share with me these harrowing stories from their life, it's like, there's no feeling. Yeah. And they'll say, I can't feel anything. It's right. because the body is shut down. So it's really, I think, the other thing that I have found is that when the body and the comes back online it's it comes out of that fight or flight sort of frozen space then these other tools like talk therapy like acupuncture like all mm -hmm. sorts of holistic healing modalities can be integrated and experienced with such deeper impact because yeah. is that marriage of the mind and the body that's coming back together yeah i agree as well with that because if you're not present in your therapy session, mm -hmm. then you're basically wasting your time. Yeah. Whereas if you go through, this is just my personal opinion, because as I've mentioned to you before, I definitely think the whole psychedelic healing is, is something I've heard so many stories, your stories, other podcasts, and it's so, it's, it's like an awakening that mm -hmm. your, your body definitely yeah. um, goes through. But um, as I said, with talk therapy, you have to be present to actually feel and yeah, to, you have to heal it. Yeah, totally. You know, I think really thinking about the, the listeners of this podcast, and this is why I really wanted to connect with you because I just, I am a mother and man, it is like the most beautiful and hard job in the world to be a mother. You know, it's like so vulnerable and raw and we want to do such a good job and there's so much pressure to do it right, whatever that means. And I think then we get into this like, so there's two, two points that I want to make. The first one is to say, I now believe that when we talk about psychedelic experiences, that's just a way to categorize an experience. Like sure, psychedelic medicines are one tool that can affect that outcome. But I will tell you that one of the most psychedelic experiences of my life was giving birth. What I mean, definitely. <laughs> what I mean when I say that is that 
a psychedelic experience in my mind is defined by a portal opening, meaning that our sort of sense of conscious, you know, egoic 3D time and space is so rigidly defined. But when we give birth, when we work with these sort of sacred medicines, it's like we realize we're not in control of everything. Maybe we don't even need to be in control of everything. Maybe that's not the point. And that space is where the, you know, again, I think the neural elasticity comes in when we let go of the attachment, the illusion to control. So just thinking of mothers who are listening, you, you know, if you're like, is this for me? Am I scared of this? Know that you've already done one of the biggest, baddest psychedelic things yeah. to do. You know, it's you're true. living it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing that I'll say is like, I don't, I mean, okay, so we talked a, a few minutes ago about how we're so glad that people are talking about the, like the Me Too movement and what has mm -hmm. gone on with women. Well, another thing that I think is under discussed that I'd like to put on the, the cultural docket, if you will, is just postpartum, like yeah. how rough that can be for people and how little we really talk about what that's like, like. I, uh, I, I mean, I think of myself as a really soulful, grounded, sane person. Mm -hmm. That postpartum period for me, especially with my first son, was like, I didn't know myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like lost to myself and I needed help so much and so badly. And the thing that brought me back into my body and grounded me out was these medicines. Yeah. And I don't mean it to say like, again, this is, this is the all encompassing answer, but I just, I guess I want moms who are struggling and feel alienated and ashamed about what, what goes on in that postpartum period that can be so dark and lonely mm -hmm. to know that that's normal. You're not broken. You're not doing anything wrong. And there are tools and there are resources and people who understand and can help you navigate through that. Amazing. And that is so important as well. Definitely mm -hmm. important. Um, which leads to me to the next point of, I wanted to go into depth about, into, sorry, there's a bit of a tongue to, intergenerational trauma. What exactly does that mean from your perspective? Yes. So intergenerational trauma is, and another way to think about it is this word that is becoming more, more familiar nowadays, which is epigenetics. So mm -hmm. we think of genetics as being like, I have, you know, blue eyes, I have brown hair, my mom has blue eyes, my dad has brown hair. These are the things that are passed on through the lines. Well, we are becoming increasingly aware of the role of what is considered epigenetics. And epigenetics would be all of the sort of non-concrete, yet very real things that move through family systems, i.e. things like alcoholism, things mm -hmm. like abuse, things like depression, anxiety. Like these are kind of baked in to our epigenetic construction, meaning that we might be predisposed 
through our family system to be more susceptible to developing these things if we're not supported, if certain triggers are set into play. And so that's another way of thinking about intergenerational trauma. I mean, I think when, you know, it was amazing to me once I started doing this work, how much I understood myself within the context of the family system from which I emerged. And that was a profound kind of realization because then it wasn't, I mean, we tend to be so autonomous in this Mm -hmm. sort of Western world that we live in. We, maybe we've forgotten that we're part of a collective Mm -hmm. and that that collective has such deep impact, good and bad on how we are, who we are, what we are. And so the more we can understand about our, our sort of generational stories, the more empowered we are to make the right decisions for ourselves and for our kids to feed our nervous systems what they need to not fall into that predisposed rabbit hole, if you will. Yeah. How do you feel about the term um, generational curses? I know that's something that has been a bit of a trend word um, these days of break your generational curses. Um, what's your perspective on that? It's an interesting, it's an interesting semantics choice. Um, I mean, I don't know. I feel like curse has such a like heavy, heavy connotation. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't love that. I don't love that in the sense that it, it seems to suggest that we're like lost of agency against Mm -hmm. the thing. And what my work has taught me is that we have a lot of agency when we are supported, when we have resources, we can, we can alter the story, you know? So, I mean, again, not to, to make it just about me, but I can speak most from my own personal experience. So in the evangelical world in which I grew up, powerful women were witches. Okay. That was like a thing. I mean, I remember having like one very specific aunt who told me like, you know, things and don't let them find you out. (laughs) That very much felt like a curse to me. And it's a strange thing to think on now because she was both trying to protect me by telling me that. And it hurt me at the same time because it it made me as a little kid internalize a message about not being my full self. So so one could say that that was like a generational curse, but that's just one lens to look through. I mean, I think part of what the medicine has also helped me to understand and part of why I think of myself as a trauma midwife. So in my lineage, that same one that I just referenced that told me like, watch out, they don't want them to know you're one of the witches. Mm-hmm. There's a long history of midwives. Now, these were midwives in the sense of delivering babies, like in the back yeah. hills and woods of Tennessee, when there was no hospital, there weren't any doctors coming. It was just women coming together mm-hmm. to take care of one another. I see myself as like part of that lineage. I am a midwife of a different kind. And I have come in this in this chapter of my lineage story to change the story 
but to also honor my roots. I think we can do all the, all the things at the same time. And it's about conscious and unconscious choice. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I mean, in my family, it was the teenage pregnancy. And mm. literally from five years old, it was drilled in my head like, no, do not have a kid young, do not have a kid young. So I really had a preconceived notion that having children was going to be traumatizing. So right. in a way, it kind of manifested that way anyway, because I found the whole process once I had, well, actually from beginning, traumatizing. Because um, mm. my mum's a teen mum, my grandma's a teen mum, her mum was a teen mum. My mom's sister's a team mom. So there's like a whole bunch of team moms, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, um, talk and generational, intergenerational stories. Exactly. And even though I had my son at 29 going on 30, which I felt was obviously quite late, it was like, <laughs> oh my God, like this is daunting for me, you know? And even five years on, I'm like, oh my God, like I don't think I want another one um, because of the constant message of don't have a kid young so mm. and I believe it's a real thing and I know that I've also I don't know if you've heard of it as well like they're saying while you're pregnant everything you think feel the baby, um, and the baby then carries it and so I'd love to just say a little something on that notion because I think I don't think that that's wrong um, I think it's true. Like I, I can see such a strong difference in personality between my oldest son and my youngest son, my oldest son, super bumpy pregnancy. As I referenced before my, my youngest son, we no problems. He just mm -hmm. popped. I hardly even noticed that it happened. Everybody <laughs> can't do that after a C-section. Well, he did and it was fine. So Yes, I think that the nature of the pregnancy impacted their personalities and, and also I think these baby spirits, they're not without their own sort of agency. Like mm -hmm. someone to me a long time ago, someone I respect deeply and consider one of my best teachers in this life, our kids, they choose their karma. And part of that is that they choose us. So to think that we have, like, this is the big, I guess what I'm saying is that I think this idea sets moms into like a tailspin of like, oh God, I've already damaged my child. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Your child chose you. This is symbiotic mm -hmm. relationship. That spirit is learning what it needs to learn. And it's an unfolding that you guys get to do together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that theory. And I definitely, definitely agree with that as well. Because it is a bit like, oh, my God, my child's messed up because of me. But, you know, they do, they are their own spirit. They do choose their own path. They do have their own sort of own spiritual background. Because mm -hmm. I definitely, you know, as weird as it may sound to some, I definitely believe in like reincarnation and and all of that stuff so that's just my my belief mm -hmm. um why do you think so many women are revisited by past trauma when they've had their baby or short like that that time period of having their baby i mean i think some of it is related to what we were talking about just a minute ago that that birth is this 
crazy, mind altering, life changing experience. And so the cohesive self that you built and established over all of the years until you became mother, however many years that took, suddenly is blown into a million pieces. Your body is not your own. It's like on loan to this child. Your sense of who you were before is never going to sync up exactly to who you're going to be now. And so in the midst of that, everything that's unresolved, that's just been sort of tucked away kind of under the folds of time and space, come pressing forward because it's, it's a moment of opening. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that as well. And I, I also had my own theory that the reason why labor is so painful is the transition of your child, your baby, transitioning from the spirit world to the physical world. And then yeah. you as a mother transitioning from basically a, a woman, maybe a non-mother or a mom of one or, you know, basically becoming a, a mother to this being. And yeah. that is, is, is quite painful. Um, well, very painful for some, but, you know. Well, particularly if and when the mother didn't necessarily experience, I mean, nobody has a perfect childhood. That's just not a thing. But if the mother didn't have a childhood that felt nurtured and mm -hmm. supported, and then suddenly she is a mother, she's gone from what some might call maiden to mother, but she hasn't, she's not experienced childhood necessarily mm -hmm. herself. She's not necessarily been mothered herself. Now she's in these shoes and this role that she suddenly recognizes, wow, I had an intellectual concept of what this meant, but my body is not knowing where I am. Yeah, definitely. And I love the theory that you said in the um, pre-pod that we have that like when you give birth to your baby, it's kind of like giving birth to your inner child. And then basically you're just, you're, that your inner child now wants nurturing too. Yes. And that's where the trauma sort of um, starts to resurface and create all these different things. <laughs> you know, right. as you said earlier, when that postnatal part is, can be very traumatic. Yeah. Very traumatic and very isolating. Um, what is the long-term goal for psychedelic healing? Um, and again, this is a question I, I sort of think you've answered partially, but like, is it a one-time thing or is this a part of a lifestyle? That's, an, that's another really good question. I mean, I think that it could be, it could be both. Um, you know, for some people, it's really about coming and reconciling a trauma. And then, then they do, they've reconciled the trauma and they sort of move forward with their life liberated and out of the hurt place. And that's mm -hmm. great. I think also what often happens is that people come to this with sort of the notion, I mean, this was, this was definitely my case. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna fix the thing and then I'm gonna get back to work. <laughs> mm -hmm. because that's like kind of the conditioning of our culture, you know, and along the way of healing, 
I, I kind of awakened to the notion that this, this body of work, which is like awakening my spirit, deepening my intuition is not something that's to be done in a vacuum. It's, it is like a life practice. And so it, it doesn't look the same now for me as it did when I was like trying to repair the deep trauma but it still plays a role in my life. It's like a part of a larger spiritual practice. Right, right, that makes sense. Um, what is the message that you want anyone to know who is considering going through psychedelic healing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think at the core, the most important things to me for people to think about are one, you know, tune into your intuition. Do you, do you feel really called to this? And if you do, do you feel ready to go there now? Do you have support? Because as expansive and opening as it is, it also, anytime we expand, there's like, like think about your kid when they start walking, that's an expansion, right? They fall down a lot yeah. because it's new. So there's gonna be a lot of like stumbling as you get your new sea legs. So having support to really prepare and integrate for that experience, I think is so critical, especially particularly when you're a mother thinking about doing this work. And I think the other piece that I would say is paramount is really thinking about who holds that sacred container with you and for you. Um, because there are a lot of people as this sort of psychedelic renaissance is happening that will, that will sit with you. And that's not all created equal. And it doesn't, it's not to say that the person needs to have this degree or that certification. It's more of like, again, tuning into your intuition. Who, who do you feel safe with? Yeah. Because how much happens in that space is correlated to how safe you feel with the person who's holding the container. Right. So if you don't have that sense of safety, the medicine may or may not do its thing in the way that you want. That's such an important piece. And that's actually something I didn't think about, to be honest. And it's actually so true because you, you're opening up your soul. And if you, you're not feeling it, then there's no point. If, again, it's, it's no, no point in going through it. It's not going to no. work. I mean, I've had, I've had so many people come and they're like, you know, they went to some faraway place and they worked with like indigenous shaman. And I mean, in theory, that's beautiful, but they didn't feel safe. Like they were overstimulated by the environment or the shaman was like, no, didn't do anything wrong, but just they felt intimidated by the sex yeah. and setting. Yeah. These are all really important things to think about. Tailor the experience to what your nervous system is calling for and asking for. Amazing. And lastly, I would love you to tell our listeners where they can find you and if they need to reach out because they want more information about, you know, yeah. going on this journey. Yes. 
So I always welcome people reaching out. And I say like, you know, even if you just want to ask some questions so you can feel into this more, you can always shoot me an email, reach out to me. I'm very passionate about these topics. So you can find me at my website, which is my name, micastoberconsulting.com. And you can also find and follow me on Instagram at micasugarfoot. Those are the two places where I most present and available and yeah if you come to my website you can sign up for my newsletter i send out a monthly newsletter with all sorts of exercises and information and just love building out the community because it does it i think it you know it takes a, the, the saying it takes a village to raise a child and i think it takes another village to heal our collective hum, humanity wounds and that's what Definitely. we're all trying to do Definitely. It's been such a pleasure having you here, Michael, and having this conversation with you. Oh, it's so, been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to this week's episode. Feel free to leave a comment, like, and share this episode. If you want a chance to be a guest on the show, all you have to do is send me a DM on my Instagram, which is at the Mummy Warriors. See you next week.